Welcome to the Aurora Cornerstone Podcast. Thank you for tuning in. We hope today's message is an encouragement to you. So this morning, the text is 2 Timothy. And the text is chapter 1, verse 6. For this reason, Paul speaking to Timothy, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power, love, and of self-control. Father, we ask that you would open our minds, and I pray our hearts, I pray our understanding, to what you're saying in this text, not to so much Timothy, but to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me do that text again. We're on a theme, and the theme is just a a short little series. We're in the middle of that this morning. The series is called Power, Love, and of Sound Mind. Would you say that together with me? Power, Love, and Sound Mind. Originally, I was going to entitle the series Spirit of Intimidation, but I didn't want to give them any more fuel for the fire. So instead, I'm calling it Power, Love, and Sound Mind. That's what we need. And out of that, there is issues that we have to address. Paul is talking to Timothy, and right before this, this verse 6 and verse 7, right before this, Paul has just reminded Timothy that, Timothy, hey, I, I know your grandma, I know your mama, and I know you, and your people of faith. He's known the family. Uh, people, scholars think that, that he's known them before, you know, when Timothy was young, he knew them uh, long before that. But whatever the case, he knows the grand, grandma, he, grand, he mentions the name and the mother. And then he said, Timothy, listen, you've got, you've got um, uh, an atmosphere of faith around you. You've got a culture of faith. You've got some strength there. But then he's making an observation because as we go past verse 7, you will notice his observation is Timothy is pulling back. Something is kind of getting in in the way because God's hand is upon Timothy's life. God has... Uh, marked him for something, and Timothy's pulling back. He's not where he ought to be. Thus, Paul speaking into this. And Paul identifies where he says, and for this reason, for the reason of you've been called. You've been called in a culture of call. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God. I want to use another expression. Fan into flame, picture here is like uh, where the flame was once hot and bright, but it's gone down to simmering embers. You know how if you fan into flame, you know if you're at a campfire and it's going down, you know you're blowing on it to try to get it back up again. The picture here. But another phrase that I'm going to use is awaken. Awaken the gift of God. It's really what's happening. Awaken the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands, which, which you were released for. There was, there was God's purpose and plan. For God gave us A spirit not of fear. The word fear here is better translated intimidation. Everybody say intimidation. Intimidation. It's better translated because fear is very broad. Fear can go multiple ways. And so this particular translation of this is really honing in on intimidation. Another translation will use timidity in order to try to bring accuracy so that we understand what this fear actually looks like in this particular context. For God has not given us a spirit of intimidation. Now note that, it's a spirit. It just didn't say that somebody intimidates you. 
You know, there are people who intimidate us. You know, their, their size, their power and stuff. They're just, they can be, by their very presence or their power, they can be intimidating. But he's speaking of a spirit of intimidation. In other words, it's not about size, power, money. Because the spirit can take even the smallest, tiniest person and the spirit of intimidation is all over you. It's not about the, the power they weld over you. So for God has not given us a spirit of timidity, intimidation, but power, love, and sound mind. I'm still getting to the power, love, and sound mind. You've got to come back next week for that one. I know I'm baiting you to come back, but um, there's things that we have to grab if we are to understand, because we often just quickly run to the power, love, and sound mind without understanding, without understanding what that is. I want to do a quick review of what brought us here to this moment. Last week, we were looking at when, as a, as a person, when you commit your life to Christ to be your Lord, when you do that, that Ephesians is a great book, and I encourage you to go to uh, Ephesians, uh, Colossians, Philippians particularly, Galatians a little bit towards the end of Galatians, but in those four, we call them the, the, the epistles, that in those letters, they're talking about who we are in Christ, particularly Ephesians 1 and 2. And Ephesians 1 and 2, in Ephesians 1, it's talking about, uh, and, and 2, it's talking about how God has positioned us in heavenly realms. It talks of in Christ Jesus. So as Jesus, when he rose from the dead, he defeated death, and God positioned him in the heavenly realms. There's, there's different realms of the atmosphere around us. And in realms, plural. And in the heavenly realms, it's a place above rulers of darkness. So prior to that, we in our flesh, we in our own in our humanity, we are under the principality. We are born, fashioned, and shaped in iniquity and sin. And we're under the ruler of, of Satan, the enemy of our flesh, the devil. And, but in Christ Jesus, he, in Christ, has positioned us with Christ in the heavenly realms. In other words, Satan no longer has authority over you. You have authority in Christ Jesus. Christ has authority over death, over sickness, over the grave, over, over life. He has authority. No longer of death, but of life. And in Christ, we are placed in that measure of authority. Now, we talked of that last week. Positional authority, Ephesians 1, Ephesians 2. The thing is, if the devil can get the believer to lay down his or her authority, then he will once again have authority to operate in their life if he can get you to lay it down. Intimidated believers lose their authority in the spirit by default. In other words, when you come under the spirit of intimidation and you succumb to that, by default, you, your gift goes into a sleep mode. Your gift becomes inactive what he was addressing with Timothy. Your gift becomes inactive. Intimidating spirit is a spirit, and it's a spirit that often in Scripture going back, both Old and New Testaments related to witchcraft, because witchcraft has to do with manipulation. Manipulation has to do with controlling you. If I can control you. So witchcraft, manipulation, spirit of intimidation works in the same way. And we saw an illustration, we used one, there are a number, but one of the illustrations, we went to the story of Elijah in 1 Kings, and in Elijah, the story where God had raised up this prophet 
there was a wicked king and his wife. His name was King Ahab, his wife Jezebel. And the nation was under great strain. There was death all around. It was a, it was a wicked situation and God needed them replaced. The prophet was raised up. And the prophet was able to see, and if you know the stories of Elijah, he saw some pretty amazing things. I mean, he was able to call down rain. He was able to stop the rain for three years. And then he just called rain down after three years. He was able to stand before uh, a bunch of false prophets. And there was an altar made, and he soaked it with water. And then he called fire down from heaven, and it blew up the altar, and it blew up the other altars. I mean, it would have been amazing. If any of you have visited Israel, you've maybe gone up Mount Carmel, and we've gone into the area where they say somewhere here he had this altar. And, and it's quite a moving experience to be up there and to think, what took place that day? I mean, in some ways, I'm kind of standing back going, man, God, if you blew down fire, I don't want to be near wherever that altar was, right? Because it's just like exploded, and then all the other altars exploded too. And it was a great day of demonstration of God's miraculous power. But that wasn't the whole purpose. The whole purpose was that was to translate into Ahab and Jezebel getting removed off the throne. But when Elijah went to Jezebel, probably smaller in stature to himself, the spirit of intimidation was all over her. And she threatened him. Now, he had just withstood all these things. She threatened him, and he ran for his life. Where God had to send an angel and say, Elijah, what are you doing here? I didn't, this, this, this is not my plan right here. Elijah, you need to go back. And Elijah was deeply, deeply in despair. We see this in Elijah. And here was, here's what happens. So what happened? The spirit of intimidation knocked the purpose out of Elijah. An intimidating spirit will unleash this. Here's how you know. It will unleash confusion. It will unleash discouragement, frustration. You will lose your perspective, and almost everything will be overwhelming. And the call, as we closed last week, was God awaken the gift. Bring us back to that authority. Awaken the gift. Now, I have three things I want to share this morning. Number one, it's an expression I'm going to use, and we've picked this up just a few years ago in a ministry our church is a part of, a partners with, called Cleansing Stream Ministry. And there's an expression we've used called, and we've borrowed it from, it's a fairly new phrase called identity theft. Now, you've probably heard of it, identity theft. Identity theft is when those who have no right fraudulently take your identity and use it for their gain. They can do it through your social insurance. They can do it through your uh, banking. They can do it through a number of means. They fraudulently take your information, your identity, and use it for their gain. They steal from you is what they do. They steal from you. And, and that phrase is called identity theft. I want to talk about identity theft as it matters to God. Because identity does matter to God. God told Jeremiah... In chapter 1, verse 5, the prophet, he said, Before you were born, I knew you. And he says, I marked you as a prophet. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 3, would, as he would begin public ministry, he's about 30 years old, and he comes up out of the waters of baptism, and the Heavenly Father speaks these words in verse 17. This is my son. 
Now, God already knew that, and Jesus already knew that. But he spoke the identity. This is my son whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. And out of that identity, Jesus had authority to do the work he did for those years. When Jesus would later ask his disciples who they, who the people around, who others were saying he was, there was different thoughts. And then Peter spoke up in Matthew 16, 17. And Peter said, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus in response says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, identity. For this was not revealed to you in the flesh. In other words, you didn't get this on your own brightness, Peter. But my Father in heaven revealed that to you. My Father in heaven revealed my identity. And we see the significance of identity. God takes identity very important. John chapter 10, I invite you to turn there. John chapter 10. It's a scripture often quoted. Many of you will recognize it. In verse 10. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. But then Jesus says, but I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I want to talk about the first one here because this relates. The thief cannot go ahead and kill, cannot go ahead and destroy unless he first steals. He steals. That's what he does. He takes what's not his. We go back to that whole principle of that positional authority, the placement God has placed, the believers in Christ Jesus. And if the thief can steal your position, or at least have you believe your position is stolen from you, then he can regain advantage. So, it has here where the thief comes to steal, kill and to destroy. I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. What does the thief, the thief steal? He will steal your hopes. He steals your vision and dreams. He steals your joy. He steals the prophetic word spoken over you by God. Now, I'm not going to ask you to respond, but I know, I know, I know. I've been ministry long enough to know that every believer gets stolen from at some point in time. What does he steal? He steals the hope. Your hope disappears. He steals your dreams. Your dreams are gone. Steals your joy. You, you know, you're singing praise songs and, and just nothing is happening in your life. And he steals God's word over you about who you are. And he replaces it with discouragement, defeat, despair, and often depression. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 12 says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, authorities, against powers of this dark world, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. There we are again, in the heavenly realms. The word steal in John 10, the thief comes not only, the thief comes only to steal, kill and to destroy. The word steal there actually is a Greek word. And the Greek word is klepto. Everybody say klepto. klepto. Now, where do you think that word is used in its full term? Kleptomaniac. That's the word. That's where it comes from. It means to steal. Actually, you look it up, the definition, recurrent urge to steal without any regard for need or profit. 
Recurrent urge to steal without any regard for need or profit. You see, a kleptomaniac is sneaky. They're subtle. They pose as an innocent friend, but when your back is turned, they pick your pocket. They steal not because they need it. They steal not because they can benefit from it. They steal for the sole purpose is that you don't have it. When I, became, when I became aware of that, that was an aha moment for me. They steal not because they need it. They steal not because they benefit from it. They steal to keep you from it. Solely to keep you from it. That way, the scripture when it says they come, the thief comes to steal, kill, and to destroy, yeah, the other two will follow. That's the goal. They steal so you don't have it. So you can't operate in it. So it's not yours. Steal. He steals and takes our purpose. Therefore, identity theft is where God's intent for your life has been stolen from you. So we come back to that. We see he's a steal. He's a robber. He takes for the sole purpose you don't have. For your sole purpose, you will not have authority in the Lord. For the sole purpose, you will not have the joy of the Lord. You will not have the dreams of God. Your hope will not come alive. When we begin to rejoice and celebrate, you have your hands dangling because there's no hope in you. He steals it. Rips you off. So what makes us vulnerable? How can we, how can we guard ourselves against this? What do I do? What do I do? What makes and renders a person vulnerable to the spirit of intimidation? I want you to go to Matthew chapter 26. Second point I'm going to be sharing. I'm going to explain it. Second point is this. Refusing the oil press. The answer to the question, what makes a person vulnerable to the spirit of intimidation? The answer, sounds simple, but I'm going to explain it, is refusing the oil press. I'll explain. Matthew 26, 36 tells the story, best explained. It's the story of Jesus at the Garden of Gethsemane with his disciples. We pick it up in verse 36. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. Everybody say Gethsemane. Okay, that's important. And he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. The word Gethsemane means oil press. I think we have a picture of it. Okay. Uh, if you've been to Israel again, they, that's one of the key things it'll take you because that's, that's what Gethsemane means. It means oil press. An oil press extracts oil from the olive. The olive does not freely yield its oil. Only under great and intense pressure applied to the olive will the oil that is from within come out. Gethsemane is a place, not so much a geographic place on the map, but Gethsemane is any place where the pressure, intense pressure, great pressure is applied. Not on oils, on olives we're talking, but on hearts. Pressure on your heart. Under intense pressure, what is inside will come out. And often to our own surprise. When Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane, so here we live it out. Jesus goes to the Garden of Gethsemane, oil press. He is deeply distressed. 
You can read of the text. We're not going to take the time this morning. But you read of this travail. This travail in Jesus. Even they call his, his sweat was like drops of blood. They equated it. So intense was this time for him. The pressure was hugely intense. Why? He was in the oil press. He was fighting his greatest battle. His greatest battle was not when they nailed him. His greatest battle was not even the day after. His greatest battle was right in that moment. The Garden of Gethsemane. The oil press. The temptation. The temptation of his flesh. The temptation, do I fulfill the will of the Father in another way and thereby also save himself? Tracking with me on that one? Am I able to fulfill what God wants and at the same time fulfill my own life? Now, I could just stop right there. I think we got it. Isn't that the oil press? To fulfill God's will and still fulfill your will too. Yeah. <laughs> That's the, ta- the challenge he was under. And you have this, you read the story, this, this pleading, if you would, with the Father while in the garden. This is the first time you will see the will of the Father and the will of Son face off. In the garden, it was not enough that Jesus simply knew the will of the Father. He now had to become the will of the Father. Wasn't enough that he understood it. Wasn't enough that he knew about it. He now had to be it. Now it had to go into action. And Jesus when he rose up with the power and resisted the temptation, it was rooted in what he loved the most. That's the oil press. The oil press will prove what you love the most. It'll come out. And it proved in the Garden of Gethsemane what he loved the most. Not my will, but yours be done. Not my will. And you see the battle change. And you see in the midst of that, no longer was his purpose now anywhere in the equation. He was dead. He was dead before he went to the cross. He died in Gethsemane. He he died in Gethsemane. And therefore, the power of what God was able to do could be fulfilled. The power of his love for the Father now was demonstrated there in that very moment. In the end, he lost himself in the love of the Father. There was no more Jesus, the old Jesus. It was lost in the Father's love. This love broke what no man had ever conquered. And that is the love of self. The love of self was destroyed. Oil broke forth proving his love for the Father. Now, while that is going on at Gethsemane, there were three others at the Gethsemane. Peter, James, and John. And while he is going through his Gethsemane oil press, they're going through their Gethsemane. As they face their own temptations, different than his, nowhere related to his, but as they face their own temptations, they began to draw on, draw on their own strength. Jesus would say in Matthew chapter 26, verse 40, What? To them. What? Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. 
We ought to understand the nature of temptation. Lest you enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. The spirit is saying, yes, we're here with you, Jesus. Yes, Jesus, where you go, we will go. Yes, Jesus, you pray, we will pray. The spirit, the spirit is willing. Nobody's denying the willingness of the spirit. But your flesh, your flesh is not backing it up. You see, Peter had not learned to draw only from God. So he fell asleep. He fell asleep. Both the disciples and Jesus' heart were tested on that moment at the oil press. The oil press tests the flesh versus the spirit. Jesus emerges refined. He comes out clear, Lord, I'm lost in you. On the other hand, you see the disciples emerge sleeping. Now, we go back, remember our text? Awaken the gift. Awaken it, Lord. Awaken it. The disciples were lulled to sleep while Jesus refused to allow Satan to steal his gift. And again, it relates to the scripture. So, after Jesus emerges, what happens next? So key. We often think it just, no, what happened next was based on what just happened. What happens next is Jesus is now ready to face the enemy of intimidation. Because in the next few minutes, where does Jesus end up? You see him before the highest level of government there is. If there's ever intimidation, it's going to flow off of this level. Jesus stands before the Matthew chapter 27, verse 12 to 14. And his ability to stand firm in the face, in the heat of intimidation, where there's a spirit, a bad spirit, present. Verse 12, when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, the Bible says he gave no answer. Pilate representative of Caesar, the government, comes before him and says, don't you hear the testimony they were bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge. And then it ends that little phrase, to the greatest amazement of the governor. It's like, that's amazing. You see, boldness is not how loudly we talk. Boldness can be found in how loud our silence is. Silence while you're accused in your face and you say not a word. Silence. These religious leaders attempted to gain control over Jesus with their threats, their powerful position. They lied, yet Jesus knew, Jesus knew they couldn't take his life because he had already given it up back in Gethsemane. At the oil press, he laid it down. On the other hand, you see another test taking place at the same time. The disciples are in the outer courtyard. Peter's in the outer courtyard. While Jesus is facing the the brass, Peter's out in the outer courtyard, a little servant girl. He's warming himself by the fire, and he was intimidated, and he cursed God. Reason? He loved his own life. He still loved his own life. This is worth tattooing on your mind. The root of fear and intimidation is the love of self. The root of fear and intimidation is the love of self. So I want to take us to the last point. 1 John 4, verse 18. The last point is selfless love. That's what he's calling us. Selfless love. Verse 18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. Because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears, the one who fears, 
is not made perfect in love. Because fear has to do with you. And fear has not been perfected. Fear and intimidation are magnified as you focus on yourself. When we truly lay our lives down out of our love for Jesus, we will no longer care what happens to us because we're committed to his care. I'm going to say that again. When we truly lay our lives down out of our love for Jesus, truly lay our lives down, we will no longer care what happens to us because we know he will care for us. We just love him and obey him. Fear should no longer torment us because, I mean, after all, a dead person can't be tormented. I mean, there is not a single person who in their casket, if you put a gun to their head, are fearful because they're dead. And Jesus could not be intimidated. Jesus could not be moved because he had already died. And the power to overcome the enemy and to stay in the positional authority is based on the ability to lay down self-love and to take on the love of the Father and be lost in it. Be lost in it. That you just know there's nothing that this world can gain over you. There is nothing that can cause you to fear or to step back or to tremble. But an iona of that of your self-love will open the door to the intimidation spirit. The point with Peter is that he had yet to die to himself. So he could be intimidated in the garden. He could be intimidated in the outer. He could be intimidated wherever he went. He had ability to get to him. Our love is revealed in our oil presses. And when we resist the oil press that God puts us in, when we resist those moments and we fight against it, griping and complaining, kicking and screaming, then we resist God potentially refining and bringing out something that is pure, filled with obedience and full love for the Father. The boldness it takes to break the power of the spirit of timidity must be fueled by our love for God. Good intentions are not enough. Peter wanted to show he could be loyal, even if it meant death. But his strength, and he was a strong guy. He was probably the strongest of the disciples, but his strength and desire was not enough to do it. He just couldn't do it. Your strength, your determination is not enough. No matter how strong you think, you will not as long as you still live for self. And don't become consumed in the love of the Father. I want to close with the story, and the story that's probably, again, common to many. It's in John chapter 21. I'm not going to go to the text, but if you want to go there, John chapter 21, Jesus has already been crucified. He's risen from the dead. He's now the story where the disciples went, and they cast out their net on the other side. They caught fish. And you have this dialogue in chapter 21 of John, the last dialogue of Peter and Jesus, and Jesus and Peter chatting, and it's where Jesus asked Peter three times, Peter, do you love me? Now, we've been contrasting this through. Peter, do you love me? When Jesus would say it, he would say, Peter, do you agape me? The Greek word, do you agape me? The word agape emphasizes action involved in your love. It's all out love. It's everything in it. Action involved. Peter, do you agape me? And Peter would answer back each of the three times, and he would change the word to filio. Filio where you get the word Philadelphia from, the word is limited to our affections. It's a feeling of love. It's independent of actions. You feel love. You, 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 you have intentions of love. 
It's not that you are loveless. It's a different kind of love, but it's not like agape, though. Agape is demonstrated in action. Filial love, on the other hand, is, is you feel. You, you identify with feelings of love, independent of action. Jesus would ask him, and Peter would respond with a different word. The third time Jesus asked, he changed his word from agape. He said, Peter, do you filial, do you filial me? He used the same word Peter had been using. And no doubt that would have been difficult because that was a recollection of, of Peter two days before where he had denied the Lord when he had promised he would never do it. Days before when he fell asleep, when Jesus said, couldn't you pray but one hour? Days before when he came with the sword and took it into his own hands, when Jesus says, no, this is of the Father. He had failed miserably. And so all this is now screaming in front of him before Jesus. And Jesus now uses, Peter, do you filio me? He's reduced the love down from the love of action to the love of feeling and good intentions. In a frustration, Peter answers, Lord, you, you know all things. You know I, you know, you know that's the way I love you because I proved it. You know I have affection for you. And then Jesus started by asking, and here's the key. He started, he says, do you love me enough to lay down your life? The word agape, and of course, Peter couldn't do it. And so he goes on. Remember, Peter's a broken man now. And Jesus continues on. We pick it up in John 21, verse 18. Jesus says, very truly, I tell you, Peter, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. I'm going to pause there. In other words, Peter, you looked after yourself. Like you're doing today, Peter. He continues, but Peter, when you are old, he's prophesying, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. In verse 19, he answers what we're asking. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. That's what it says. The kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And then Jesus, still looking to Peter, said, Peter, follow me. Let the oil press do its work. Follow me. Jesus is telling Peter, Peter, you failed before me in your strength of affectionate love. You had feelings of love. But there is coming a day, Peter, when you will face your greatest fear and you will this time be victorious in the strength of perfected love. He was telling Peter, you will face the oil press one day, but this time you'll come through victorious. And history tells us it's exactly what happened. History tells us he moved from filio love to agape love. And he was victorious. He was, if you would, a dead man walking to himself because he has lost himself in the love of the Father. Church this morning kind of makes sense now, doesn't it? When we are facing the pressures and difficulties and the things that come up against you, don't resist, don't refuse the oil press. The oil press will not perfect your love. All it does is reveals what's on the inside. But having your inside revealed is good. In so much that you do something about it. In so much that you recognize that there is still me in this. There is still a lot of my own strength in this. There is still a, listen, I have good feelings. I have good intentions, God. I have all kinds of plans, but you get to the end of life and you don't accomplish them. I got all kinds of plans, but I haven't died to myself. I haven't lost myself in the fullness of God's love. 
And that is possible, but not without. Deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me. As we close this morning, I just, if that, is, if that resonates in you, then we are on this journey that God is restoring us to that place of his positional authority and that the gift of life be awakened in us. Not just to do better what I do, and I trust that will be. A good follower of Christ will do the best in, their, in, in all things. But that's not what it is. That instead, we would come alive in our faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. And out of that, out of that, no fear, no death, no height, nor depth, nor any other creature will be able to get in there. Will be able to move us out of our positional authority. Oh God, awaken the gift. Awaken the gift, oh God. I invite you, would you join me in standing? Worship team, if you'd come back up. Worship team is going to go, they're going to lead us into that last song, Reckless Love. And I'm going to invite you to just worship the Lord and uh, altar times are frequently a place where we make a decision to step out and to say, God, that's my commitment for you. My commitment is, you might say I'm stepping out in filial love and you might go back in filial love, but God, take me to the place where agape love now resides and rules in my life. God, I, I, so, and it comes down to obedience. It comes down to action. It comes down to action. Not just what you think, what you intend. You have good intentions. And, and this world is filled with good intentions. I'm going to suggest even this morning in churches, we're filled with good intentions. But what God is looking for is lives that are just all laid out for him. Do you love me? Do you agape me? And under the pressure that you're feeling, the oil press, God, refine me and awaken the gift. Awaken your salvation. Awaken the love again. Awaken me to that. And what means when you walk out of here, it means that you will commit, you will be a person striving to die to self, to live for Christ. I decrease Christ that he be Lord of all. I'm going to invite you, as the worship team begins to, I'm going to have a prayer, general prayer, just about three minutes, four minutes. Worship team's going to lead in this song, going to go through this song. While we sing this song, if, you're, if, if you had a stir in your heart this morning, you identify, and I encourage, listen to the stir. I know God can touch you where you're, where you're standing and seated, and he will. I'm not belittling that. I've discovered when God stirs my heart for a moment to step out, I need to step out. If he stirs my heart to lift my, I need to lift my hand. If I refuse to do that, that's me again. That's me again. That's me. And when he stirs my heart to say, I want you to step out. Let's begin the action journey of agape. Let's begin it. Every action requires action. So I'm going to invite you as the worship team leads just to come stand along the front. I'm going to pray a prayer with you before you go. And we're just going to receive what God is imparting to us this day. So I invite you to come. If that is, if you've been stirring your heart to respond to this, then come as the worship team leads us.
pray with those here at the front? I invite you, would you just lift your hand to the Lord? Would you just extend it to Him? Father, we just, we come. Lord, agape love is demonstrated in action. It's love not based on feelings. It's love not based on circumstances. It's love not based on what we intend to do. It's love based on dying to ourselves and living for you. And Lord, we can't die to ourselves without having first begun to live for you. And so God, as we lift our hands to you, God, I pray that there would be fresh hope, fresh hope. And Lord, give us, give us uh, eyes to see how much your love for us has prepared us for this very moment. That God is not a love that's going to leave us out on a branch. It's a love that cares for us. And so, Lord, right now we pray that you would just allow your love, God, as we open up your scriptures, as we sing of your songs, as we begin to testify of, of you and to you, that, God, we would feel and know and, and, and beyond anything else, we would, be, we would experience the demonstration of that love in our lives. God, may we be inundated with the depth of what that means. That, God, we pursue it at all costs because it's not about living for you and us. It's about living for you. And we die here today. We die here at this point. Our own lives, our own seeking our own way. God dies here. Our will, not my will be done, God, but yours. That dies here. And so, Lord, as we make that commitment this day, God, I pray that we would just know that you are more than sufficient. You are more than sufficient to meet all our needs. And that, God, our life lost in you means death to this world, death to the old. And that, God, intimidation will have no grasp on us. Control will have no grasp on us. Fear about what can happen to me has no grasp on me anymore because we are lost at the oil press of your love. Let it be, we pray. God, we thank you for that. God, we thank you that you not only will, you are not only teaching us, but you will equip us and you will walk with us as we experience this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Aurora Cornerstone podcast. Remember to subscribe. For more information about our church and our ministries, visit auroracornerstone.ca.